Before my sermon, uh, rather than the text in the bulletin, I want to read the last paragraph of Matthew 11. This is an invitation issued by Jesus. And these are words that remind us that at the heart of our Christian faith is not a commitment to a creed of some sort, not a commitment to a moral philosophy of some sort, but rather a commitment to a person and a relationship with that person, to people living at his own time. And because he died and rose and lives today, to everyone who will hear, Jesus said, and Jesus says, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The scene is the campus of a small co college located on a pleasant river somewhere in the upper Midwest. It's the fall of the year. And the trees that very recently provided deep, comforting pools of shade from the heat of the summer are now robed in the brilliant reds and oranges of the new season. The leaves that have fallen already eddy in the cool winds blowing across the campus and crunch beneath the feet of students taking shortcuts to classes. In the distance, the stutter of snare drums can be heard as the marching band prepares for its performance at homecoming this coming Saturday, and two men sit in quiet conversation in a corner of the teacher's lounge. One of them is a full professor in the history department where he's been a good and effective teacher for more than 30 years. He's authored a number of books on ancient civilizations and is widely sought as a guest lecturer. The other, once his student, is a much younger man who has returned after finishing his doctoral studies elsewhere, and he's come to follow in the footsteps of his mentor. This is his first year standing at the front of a classroom. His fondest hope is to be known as being as good a teacher and respected as fine a man as his older friend. The chief difference between these two men has to do with religion. The older man has never really been interested in the subject, either academically or personally. But when he's asked about his religious beliefs, rather than admitting that he's never been very interested in the subject, he claims for himself what an intellectual search is regarded as the higher moral ground of agnosticism. This gives the false impression that he studied the questions of religion and morality and life thoroughly and come to the firm conclusion that no one can come to a firm conclusion about the mysteries of life. On the other hand, his younger colleague is a Christian and has been for much of his life. For as long as he can remember, in classroom after classroom, from junior high school through graduate-level seminars on the antiquities, his faith has been consistently either assaulted or relegated to irrelevance. Yet his faith in Christ has persisted. There was a time in life when he thought that that was because he was maintaining his hold on that faith. But as he grew older and became wiser, he came to understand that that faith, or Jesus Christ, who is its author and finisher, has rather been holding on to him.
for some time, at first sitting in the classroom of the older professor and then later reading his books, there's been a question that the younger man has wanted to ask his senior. And in this pleasant conversation, it seems that the time for that question has come. Over the years, he says, I've been deeply impressed by your first-hand knowledge of the sources of ancient history. I have heard you quote freely and from memory the words of Herodotus and Aristotle and Plato. But how is it, he asks, that I have never heard you refer to the life or cite the words of Jesus Christ? Tend to tempted to scoff at the question with derision, but too polite to give in to the temptation, the older man responds with a question of his own. Who is this Jesus, he asks, to demand the serious attention of a careful student of history? He carried no sword. He led no charge. He won no battles. He changed no boundaries. He built no city, he established no empire, no crown rested on his head. He wrote no law. No invention can be traced to his genius. He made no discovery worthy of note. It's hard for me, the older man said, to imagine how the history of the ancient world would have been any different if Jesus had never lived. And that's why you've never heard me refer to his life or quote from his teachings. Recognizing the futility of further discussion and respecting the older man too much to argue with him, the young man lets the matter go. But the matter won't let go of the professor. For days afterward, he finds this question haunting his mind. And eventually he realizes that whatever he personally thinks of the worth of Jesus Christ, that there are many, many people who believe him to be important, not only to the present, but to the past. And he asks himself, how can I consider myself well-educated while I am utterly ignorant of the life and the teachings of this particular man? Embarrassed by the obviousness of the question, he begins to look through his books, first at home and then at his office in the classroom building, but nowhere does he find a Bible. Remembering that in a town about 40 miles away, there's a Christian bookstore. On a day off, he takes a leisurely ride in that direction and finds the store. He parks several doors down the street and looks both ways before he steps through its door as if he isn't eager to be seen in such a place. In the store, the young lady at the counter asks, may I help you? But not knowing for sure what he's looking for and being too embarrassed to ask if he did, the man said, no, thanks, I'm just looking around. Eventually, he finds the Bible section, and he's amazed at the assortment. The assortment of colors and sizes and thicknesses and translations and versions. But he finally finds one that looks scholarly. It has an index and footnotes. It has cross-references and maps. He takes it to the counter, and as he pays for it, the girl says, would you like that in a sack? And the man says eagerly, you bet I would. And returning to his car, again, he looks both ways, gets in his car and drives off. 
At the first opportunity, he opens this newest book and begins to read. He's not interested in Genesis or Judges or Psalms or Isaiah. He's only interested in that part of the Bible that has anything to do with the earthly life of Jesus of Nazareth. He remembers that there are books in the Bible that specialize in that. He thinks that they're called Gospels. The names of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are vaguely familiar to him. He finds them with the aid of that index I've already referred to. And he begins to read. This man is one among many in our culture who have always placed much of what they've heard about the life of Jesus in the same category as the Bermuda Triangle and UFOs and the Abominable Snowman. And sure enough, turning to Matthew, this man has barely begun to read when he comes across stories of angels speaking to men and of strange lights in the night sky giving direction to people on the earth. He's almost ready to close the book in disgust, but something in him won't let him do that, and he reads on. As a historian, his primary interest has to do with the details of Christ's life, references to things taking place in the wider world, descriptions of the places that Jesus visited, insights into the way that people lived at the time. And as he reads, he noticed that there are a few references to public officials in the Gospels. And he knows enough about ancient history to know that those citations are quite accurate, and he finds himself surprised that this collection of things he once considered little better than fables are actually rooted in real, verifiable human history. He followed the course of Jesus' life from his birth near that town where David lived as a boy to his death near that city where David ruled as a king. On a map of the ancient world that hangs on the wall of his mind, he followed the tortured trail of Christ's life. From his early journey to Egypt, fleeing from his enemies, to his last journey, hounded and prodded by his enemies to that skull-shaped hill where he would die. From the barren wastes of the Judean wilderness to the lush valley of the Jordan, from the heights of the mountains to the shores of the Sea of Galilee, along the dusty trails of the ancient world, from tiny villages no historian ever heard of to the city of Jerusalem no historian can ever forget. And as he read, as he followed the one we Christians call Lord from place to place, certain subtle impressions of the man began to form in his mind. Things not recorded in the Gospels in so many words, and yet things unavoidable to the careful student. For example, he noticed that wherever Jesus went, especially in the latter period of his life, he was almost always surrounded by large crowds of people. In Galilee, they wanted to make him their king. In Judea, they shouted Hosanna as he passed through the gates of the city. Our student of human history is also a careful observer of human behavior. Over and over, he's seen people with popularity try to capitalize on that popularity, trying to convert it to wealth or to power. But this he did not see in Jesus. Jesus. 
It would be easy, I suppose, for a historian to imagine how the history of the ancient world might have been different if Christ had given in to the common human temptation, if he had led an uprise against the despised Roman occupiers of the land and created an independent Israel with himself as its king. This Nazarene often spoke of a kingdom, but it's plain that he had a kingdom of an altogether different sort in mind. And our historian almost grudgingly becomes impressed by the fact that throughout his public life, Jesus is so focused on what he regards as the divine purpose of that life, not to be distracted by common temptations of the earth. Another incident that would have made an impression on the historian involves a story that was regarded as so important, it's found in three of the four Gospels. It's about a young man, said to be rich and a ruler of some sort, who came to Jesus desperately concerned about the state of his soul and his relationship with God. The historian read the young man's question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And became aware of the possible folly of his never having asked such a question. In the story, the young man knelt at Jesus' feet and literally begged him for an answer to his question. He was quite obviously willing to do anything that Jesus required of him at that moment. The historian was moved and impressed by Jesus' answer to this young man's question. Jesus said to him, go and sell all that you possess Give the money to the poor, and then come back and follow me. Knowing human nature, he would expect Jesus to say something like this, Go, sell everything you have, bring the money back to me, and be my disciple. It obviously never incurred to Jesus to take advantage of the vulnerability of others in order to enhance his own status in any way. And thinking such things, the historian lays the book aside, looks off in the distance, finds himself lost in thought, wondering, just who is this man? Along the way, this man, increasingly engrossed by the story unfolding before his eyes, noticed other things about Christ. He noted the marvelous balance between the wisdom and the justice found in Jesus' teachings and his willingness to give of himself even to the point of exhaustion in order to meet the needs of others. He came to be deeply impressed by Jesus' almost superhuman knowledge of the nature and the thoughts of people and by his ingenuity as a teacher. On the pages of the history he was reading, he saw the proud and arrogant cringe in terror before Jesus and flee from his presence while at the same time, the humble and the sincere were drawn to Christ, and they were welcomed by him. As the historian viewed the life rolling before his eyes, he also became aware of the sinister forces that were always present. In the beginning of the Lord's public life, they were there in the shadows, watching, listening, taking notes, later conferring with one another, in their secret chambers. Later, apparently alarmed by his growing popularity among the people, 
they began to approach him publicly with carefully crafted questions intended to embarrass and discredit him in the presence of the crowds. And finally, they engineered his arrest and crucifixion, joining others around the cross, taunting him as he suffered and as he died. The historian would be amazed that even the worst of men could despise a man who displayed such depth of character and went about doing nothing but good. But even more amazed by Jesus' response to their vile hatred. He read that from the cross, Christ prayed for them that they might know the protection of the mercy of God. And again, the historian wondered, who is this man? The historian began with an interest only in the horizontal aspects of Christ's life, the times in which he lived, the places he visited, the people and events that were a part of the story of his life. But as he read these things, he became almost instinctively aware that there's another and far more important dimension of the life of Jesus, and that's the vertical. Considering all that he'd learned, he finds himself standing alongside a woman at a well in ancient Samaria and nodding in eager agreement when she says to Jesus, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Feeling strangely attracted to Jesus, he ventures out onto the streets of ancient Jerusalem with Nicodemus looking for Christ and isn't at all offended being included in Nicodemus' words, Lord, we know that you are a man sent from God. For no man can do the things that you do unless God is with him. The professor retraces his steps to the first things that he read. And now stories about angels speaking to men and strange lights in the night sky no longer seem so unlikely. For indeed, if ever a man lived who was on intimate terms with the Almighty, Jesus is that man. In the Gospels, the historian read, as you and I have read, extraordinary claims made by or about Jesus Christ. One of those claims is that Jesus, unlike any other human being, came to earth from heaven. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And he said, the Father has sent me. Jesus said that he was the only one to have ever descended from heaven to earth and said such things as these about himself. I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning, and before Abraham was, I am. And this is at the heart of that most familiar of all Bible verses in our time, the one that declares that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And at the other end of his life, we find a similarly extraordinary claim, and that is that when Jesus' life and work on earth were done, he returned to heaven from which he had come in the first place. On the eve of his death, the Lord said to his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. And he spoke of himself as ascending to heaven. On the day of his ascension, his disciples said that they saw him rise into the heavens and be received out of their sight in a cloud. Long after Jesus' death and resurrection, a young Christian named Stephen was being stoned to death because of his profession of faith in Christ 
And as Stephen was dying at the hands of his tormentors, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And in the fifth chapter of Revelation, when the curtains of heaven are lifted just enough to allow John and us through John a peek, John says he saw the Father sitting on the throne, and next to the throne, he said, was the Lamb, looking as if it had been slain. Whatever our fictitious historian thinks of all this, we can decide for ourselves, for as the story was ours to invent, the story is ours to complete. Our hope would be that he recognizes that in addition to the horizontal dimensions of the life of Jesus of Nazareth and the vertical aspect of the person and the work of Christ, there's also the personal dimension of every man and woman, every young person and child. That's the dimension of the one who thirsts for righteousness and is allowed to see Jesus as the fountain of life. That's the dimension of life of the one who has grown weary beneath the burden of life's questions. And here's Christ say, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's the dimension of life of the one who wants above all else in life to know God and to be accepted by God, who rushes to his knees, falls to Jesus, and cries out, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is that sense that Jesus indeed is a prophet. This is that intuition that he is a man sent from God and is able to present us to God. We would like for our story to end with the historian coming to such conclusions as these and surprising his young colleague by taking a place beside him in the worship of his church on the next Sunday morning. This same Jesus who came from heaven and returned to heaven, stands before us in our worship today. He is Jacob's ladder. He is the way, and he said the only way that we might approach God. He is the truth. He is the life. In his heart, there is a love of unimaginable depth and strength, From his mind flow the truth and wisdom that we require for religious understanding and godly living. In his hand is a mercy greater than all of our sins. To our imaginary historian, to Nicodemus and the woman at the well and the rich young ruler, and to all of us, each of us who longs to know God and be accepted by him, each of us with questions about the mysteries of life, each of us troubled by the guilt of our sin and in desperate need of the mercy of God, Jesus says, come unto me. Let us pray. Our Father, when we, when we scan the pages of your word that describe the life And the deeds and the words of Jesus Christ, we find ourselves increasingly impressed by the mystery and the magnificence of his person. We who know you by faith in him, thank you for the privilege of knowing him and pray that by your marvelous grace, we might grow in that knowledge, grow in his grace in order that the joy and peace that you have for us might be increasingly complete in us 
and that our lives might shine as brilliant lights in the darkness of the world around us. And for those who have not come, we pray that they might hear his voice. In Jesus' name, amen.